Celebration Rock. Critical conversations about music. Presented by 93X and Uprocks.com. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and OpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Very excited to get into it this week. My guest is Mac McCann of one of the great American indie rock bands of all time, Super Chunk, and uh, of also uh, one of the great American indie rock labels of all time, Merge Records. He is one of the founders of that label, the label that gave us Neutral Milk Hotel, that gave us some great Spoon records. That, of course, gave us the early Arcade Fire records. Uh, and, of course, there's, there's many other wonderful albums that Mac has been involved with as a label head. And also, of course, as the leader of Superchunk. Unrelated to this episode, someone on Twitter recently reached out to me and they said, How do I get started with Superchunk? And I'm guessing they were asking that question because it was recently announced that Superchunk is putting out a record... In February of 2018, it's called What a Time to Be Alive. So maybe that's why the Superchunk was on this guy's brain. But he's asking me, like, how do I get started with this band? And it occurred to me that Superchunk is the rare band that has been around for almost 30 years. That you can basically pick any record and you're going to be okay. You know, usually you say start with the early records and avoid the later records because the later records is where the backup singers started coming in or they started playing around with saxophones <laughs> or, the, or the production style got really dodgy or, you know, they fired the original bassist and now there's a new bassist in there and it, it's kind of weird. Superchunk doesn't have that in their career. There's stability. It's the same people in the band. And it's the same level of quality. They're always writing really great songs. I guess if I had to whittle it down, you know, I would say No Pocky for Kitty from 1991 is a great entry point. Of course, you have Foolish. From 94, which is a record that a lot of people, I think, would say is the best Super Chunk record. But I also love Majesty's Shredding. That came out in 2010. That was their their comeback record after a nine-year hiatus in the 2000s. So you really have, I think, a great example, a great rare example, really, of a consistent band that's always been great. You can count on them to be great. And having heard What a Time to Be Alive, this upcoming record coming out, in early 2018, I can say that, you know, it, it remains true. This is another really, really good record. And there's a lot of anger on it. <laughs> you know, um, if you've been paying attention at all to the news, you know that 2017, there was a lot of bad things happening in politics and culture and uh, seemingly every other corner of the world. And uh, Mac was paying attention. And he wrote a collection of very feisty scrappy, angry songs that, um, it's not hardcore punk, but it, it derives from that spirit, you know, and that's where Mac comes from and being an eighties kid and getting into indie rock through the hardcore scene and how political that was in the eighties. You can hear echoes of that on this record. So it, in a way it's a, it, it's a record very much of its moment. And yet it also feels like a full circle record in a way for super chunk. So, Mac and I, we talked about that, talked about the new record. We also talked about the band's history. And 
I should say that if you're not familiar with Superchunk, if you're one of these neophytes who's looking for an entry point into this band's career, I think you're going to enjoy this episode because not only is it a window into the history of this band and Merge Records, it's also um, a good introduction to an important chapter in indie rock history. You know, this... uh, this sort of pre-internet world where uh, you had to rely on fanzines and indie labels and seven inches and independent record stores and all these things um, to spread the gospel of this kind of music and to get it out into smaller towns and not just the big cities on the coast. And uh, Mac and I talked a lot about that and how music has changed dramatically from the late 80s when Superchunk formed up through today. So it was a great conversation and I'm excited to get to it. But before we do, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week's episode and it is our old friends at Blue Apron. Now, Blue Apron, of course, is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. It's their mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And it achieves this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the higher standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Now, my producer Derek printed off a color photo of the menu that Blue Apron is offering. And my God, Derek, this is some tasty-looking stuff here. Yeah, but you know what's cool about Blue Apron is, you know, you learn to do things that you'd never do on your own. Like there's a roasted chicken and fall vegetables with cranberry and ginger compote. Like there was, you know, in my early life, I was never making a cranberry and ginger compote. But now with the apron, you learn that not only you can, you can do this stuff, it's actually kind of easy and it really uh, helps with all of your cooking. Well, and let me tell you, Derek, as a person who works here, I know you've taken advantage of this deal, but it's also, well, it's mainly for my listeners. What you guys want to do is you want to go to blueapron.com backslash celebration. You're going to get a $30 value if you go there. That is the cost of your first dinner. They're basically saying, hey, try us. First dinner's on us. If you go to blueapron.com slash celebration, that is a deal only for my listeners and also for Derek. That's right. (laughs) So you want to get there soon. Derek is a hungry man. He may eat all of the Blue Apron dinners before you get there. So again, go to blueapron.com slash celebration to get that $30 value and to support the podcast. Can I say Blue Apron, a better way to cook? Yes. Say that. Uh, I just did. All right. So me and Mac, we talked, I think it was about a week and a half ago or so. We're well in advance of the record coming out. The record's coming out in February. So we're well in advance here, but you know, last week we did the best albums of 2017, and we got that out of the way, the retrospective stuff. Now we're already looking ahead to 2018, and uh, this is one of the great records that I've heard so far out of the stack of promos that I have. This is one of the great records that I've heard so far coming out early in the year, so it was fun talking to Mac about it. Uh, So here we are. Here's me and Mac McCann talking about Superchunk and Indie Rock and all other really cool stuff. So... um, is rehearsing at this point with the band, I, I mean, does that feel like work or is it fun to get together again and, and play? No, it's rehearsing is fun, actually. Um, there's definitely songs that we don't have to practice <laughs> um, <laughs> because we've played them so many times. But even the ones we've been playing for almost 30 years, if we haven't played them in a couple of years, we got to run we got to run through them just so we don't have any surprises when it's when we're actually playing the show. Um, but today was pretty low key rehearsal because it was just me and Jim, uh, with acoustic guitars practicing for an acoustic show we're doing next week. And 
we don't do those shows that often, so it is a good idea to run through things on 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 acoustic guitar and just so again, like especially with because we're going to play a couple songs from the new record that we haven't probably played acoustically before, so you don't run into that thing where you realize, oh, I can't play that on an acoustic guitar, or I have to figure out a different way to do that, or whatever. So right. Um, that's kind of what we were working on today. And before we started recording, you said that you had to take your, recar- your guitar to the repair shop. I mean, was this because you were playing so hard today that you broke I was, it? I was wailing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I broke my guitar over Jim's back in practice. No, it was way less interesting than that. Um, you know, when it gets cold outside and then the heat comes on, it dries everything out. So, like, my neck of my acoustic had become slightly warped from that and so couldn't play certain frets so i had to take that in to get tweaked a little bit okay so you you mentioned that you're gonna be playing some songs off the new record and of course that's called what a time to be alive it's coming out in february i have to ask was that a deliberate drake reference on your part no and and i actually didn't know there was a drake record called that (laughs) um my daughter who's 14 is pretty into drake and I still didn't know that there was a record called that. So um, it was just, uh, it was a song that I wrote, and so it just became the title track and became the title of the record. So I've been listening to this record for probably the past week or so. I got an advanced copy of it, and it's really awesome. I think Thank you. people should be excited uh, to hear this record when it comes out in a few months. I think it's fair to say that this is a pretty angry record. It feels pretty raw. Uh, there's a, a you know, pretty strong political bent to at least a, a, some of the songs on the record. Can you tell me about how this evolved? I mean, to me, it feels like these songs maybe just came out of you like, or erupted out of you in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that it was. I mean, I think that they did kind of come out pretty fast, and I and I, I wrote a lot of them pretty quickly. Um, before bringing them to the rest of the band, um, and saying like, we got to make like we didn't really have a plan to make a record necessarily this year. Um, you know, Super Chunk operates on a pretty loose schedule these days, but um, I basically just said like, hey, you know, I've got all these songs, and you know, if we can put together a couple of different sessions, I think we could make a record when. You know, John's not touring with Mountain Goats or, or Bob Mould, et cetera, you know. Um, and, you know, they were pretty much all written after the election or around the time of the election last year. And, I mean, they are angry, a lot of them. I mean, I go around feeling angry a lot of the time, which is not a good way to feel, and it's not my default it's not my default way to walk around um, in the world. So I think a lot of it is, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of other people maybe feel the same way these days, but um, I feel like a lot of what the record is about is how do you deal with that in your day-to-day life, you know? How do you, I mean, you know, if I, can't, I can't stop paying attention at the news. Though I know people that have done that. And the the things that this administration is doing, and not just the worst of them, you know, like the president and, and his people around him who are all lunatics, 
But even, you know, Republicans who claim to just be like middle-of-the-road Republicans, like our senators here in North Carolina, who go along with everything that he's that he's doing and, you know, see it as their opportunity to put through an agenda that they've have always wanted to, which basically, like, cements white power and solidifies power in the hands of the, the richest people. And um, if you know that that's happening, I don't know how you can not kind of feel outraged all the time. Uh, and, but at the same time, like, that's not a productive way to to exist necessarily, you know? So right. I think it's kind of like, how do you not only like sleep at night, you know, and get up in the morning and drive your kids to school or whatever, but also then how do you channel that into something productive if possible, you know? So I think that's, that's kind of what, where a lot of the record is coming from. I mean, do you consider it protest music? I mean, I, I don't really because I feel like the fact that what these people are doing is terrible is so obvious that to say like, I'm going to protest against this, that makes it sound like they're just like, you know, putting a road through your backyard or something <laughs> like that, you know? Right. Whereas it's more like, we're going to dismantle what democracy there is here and you know in its place you'll be living under an authoritarian rule and that sounds hyperbolic but you know look at look at what they're doing and look at who look at who these people admire you know um so i feel like protest music is just like a little bit both too uh kind of obvious of a label but also like i said i'm not the songs aren't proposing policies or something. You know, it's more, it's more, it's a little bit less rational than that. I think the songs <laughs> are just more like you were saying, like a little bit more raw and a little bit more like, how do I stop from losing my mind so I can <laughs> go through the world and be a productive citizen? <laughs> right. Kind of. And I think that's a really relatable feeling. And And by the way, I think, it is a display of optimism to release this record in February, believing that we'll still be around in February to have records. Well, right. Especially after I this mean, North Korea news today that we, uh, or yesterday. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, that's one of the things I think is that you just kind of have to keep going forward, but it's not always easy. Yeah. You know, one reference point that came to mind for me as I've been listening to the record is uh, 80s hardcore. And, you know, this isn't a hardcore record. It's a super trunk record. It's a very tuneful record, very catchy. But, you know, there's a song on there called Reagan Youth, which is you know, yeah. a very blistering song. And, um, and I know that you, that's where you come from, that, you know, when you were a kid, that's, that's music that, uh, that was like some of the first music you listened to. And I think it's some of the first music you played. I mean, do you feel like that was a reference point for you when writing these songs? For sure. I mean, and, and part of it is just, and part of what Reagan Youth is about is like drawing that line between what we were protesting against back then and what was outraging back then, which was Ronald Reagan, who people point to as like, well, at least Reagan wasn't this insane, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but in, this, in a sense, like he started this, you know? Uh, I mean, he didn't start it. I'm just meaning, like, I feel like contempt, contemporary Republicanism and the contemporary right wing really 
got a breath of fresh air from Reagan and that's what sustained them. And people, um, who were young back then and were into punk rock are maybe like my age now, you know, um, and looking at this going like, I can't believe we're still dealing with this shit. And there was other people who were young back then and probably grew up conservative. And now they're, um, you know, the Paul Ryan's of the world or whatever, <laughs> right. you know? And, uh, so it's like, you could have gone two ways, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I was raised in a household that valued humanity. Um, and that I had art and culture like punk rock as like an inspiration, you know? Um, but, but part of that song was also saying like, what good was it if this is still where we're at, you know? Right. Um, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't really feel like what good was it, but it's, but it's, you know, it's one thing that you have to, I think, always reckon with if you decide to be an artist is like, what is your role and like, what are you actually doing and what kind of difference can you make, you know? I mean, I think, you know, the, the optimistic way to look at it is that if there wasn't resistance back then, then things might be even worse now, <laughs> you know, that this is a, a force that you have to constantly be vigilant against. Sure. Um, so there, it's not like it's ever going to go away. There's like, no, I agree with that. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of surges in, in waves, I guess. Um, you know, you mentioned having punk and hardcore as a, as an influence on you as a kid, you know, being a positive influence. I mean, was it the political aspect of, of that music that drew you in initially or what was it about that, that not only made you a fan, but eventually, you know, becoming a musician playing that I kind think of music? That- I think that what drew me in and what I think is still really important um, in a t- time like this when everything seems like it's just going to shit is just like the, the community of it, you know, the scene of it. Um, and, you know, for instance, if you're in 10th grade or whatever, however old I was, when I started going to shows, like, meeting people that don't go to your school and it's like, but, but they're all, but you have a shared interest, you know, and just kind of, uh, just kind of this other scene. And, um, I feel like that kind of community, both local, but also, you know, people you share value and culture with around the world is still super important. Um, again, just to, to feel like you're not alone in dealing with like whatever stuff is happening. Um, and so it was, so I think a lot of it was the community and also just, you know, the energy of that music when you're that age is just like, wow, like where did this come from? You know? Um, and then of course, like the, you know, the political aspect. I mean, we, you know, in North Carolina, Jesse Helms was, the most famous politician from North Carolina at that point. And so you had a very clear enemy <laughs> right here. <laughs> um, in addition to Reagan and, and, and Bush, you know, in the white house. Um, and so the, the, the political aspect was very real and very uh, close to home in at that time, talking about the early eighties, you know, I'm curious, have you always lived in North Carolina or did you ever like move to New York or something for a couple of years and then come back? Um, I went to, well, I was born in Fort Lauderdale. 
and we moved to North Carolina when I was 13. Okay. Um, and then grew up here and then went to college in New York. So I was in New York for a few years in the late eighties. Um, and then graduated in 90 and moved back to North Carolina. And, and you've been there ever since? Yeah. Uh, the reason I ask that is that I feel like in the eighties and nineties that there was this, um, this pride that people took in being from where they were from in, in, in rock bands that like you wouldn't have to, you, this idea that like you didn't have to be in a major media center that you could live in North Carolina or you could live in Athens, Georgia, you can live in Minneapolis, you could live in Seattle. Um, and it seemed like for a while, like in the two thousands that that changed that like Brooklyn became the center of certainly indie rock culture anyway. And it, kind of became recentered around the coasts and, and all that. I mean, is that something that, that's been important to you, I guess, uh, with your art, that you have that sort of regional identity in whatever it is that you're doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the fact that we had a band like Corrosion of Conformity that was from North Carolina in the early 80s, um, being one of the biggest hardcore bands in the country was really something to be proud of, you know? And because I think a lot of people, they hear the South or they hear North Carolina and they think like, oh, like, you know, what? It's got to be Hickville or whatever. And there's <laughs> certainly Hickville exists here. But, um, you know, something like that or, or you know, just R.E.M. And, and bands from Athens becoming so huge, you know, made you feel like, oh, you know, cool stuff can happen here. Cool stuff can happen anywhere. And, and it is happening here in North Carolina. So um, being part of the scene that already existed and before I was here and, and uh, you know, from the late 70s onwards, um, you know, and then creating our, our own scene or expanding on that in the, in the 80s and, and early 90s, I think it was important. And it was, a, I mean, part of it was just that you know, people would ask us when we started Merge and when Merge started to become known and when Superdome started to become known, like, wow, so you still live in, in Chapel Hill. Why don't you... There was this thing of, like, why don't you move to New York? Like, that kind of vibe, you know? Right. But like, isn't it hard being, you know, in a band in North Carolina or becoming known? In some ways, like, no, it's easier. Like, you know, there's... If, you know, it's easier to... to to become known if you're this kind of outlier um, and you're not in a city like Los Angeles where there's hundreds of bands or New York or whatever. But also the only reason that Merge and I guess Superchunk could exist uh, while we're working at Kinko's and Pizza Place and wherever else is because it was so cheap to live here, you know? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't really... I mean, when I finished school in New York, I moved back here. I mean, I, it was never even an idea that I would be able to get a job that I could pay rent in New York, you know, much less pay rent being in a band or whatever. So um, I think that, you know, the the way you can live here just made our existence possible. Um, so it was partially just that, you know, logistical and everything else, but also just, you know, why not have a unique character to what you're doing and why not you know draw on where you're from to make something that's um to make something that's that's unique yeah and and 
I mean, just going, going back to what you were saying before about like what function does art serve and you know, as, a, as a form of resistance, um, cultural conservative, cultural conservatism or political conservatism. I mean, I feel like the fact that you stayed in North Carolina, it helps to create a pocket there outside of some of that stuff where people can live there and they can feel that there's an alternative to this pervasive conservatism that goes on. I mean, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin originally, so I, I grew up in a similar kind of situation um, and it's just nice to be able to have those pockets. And I think it, it often falls upon artists to create those uh, sorts of things for people. Yeah, and I and I um, I think that it's ex- it's it was always exciting when there would be a new band from around here. You know that you would start seeing play live, and then you start seeing people pay attention and nationally. Um, I mean. Uh, and and since then, you know, there's even more venues, there's more bands, there's more record labels here now than there have ever been. Um, so I think it's still a really exciting place. Um, but but I and I but I think that the things that make it unique and the things that allowed us to exist in the first place, cost of living, uh, great record stores, great clubs, college radio, um, that's obviously not unique to North Carolina. You know, you see that. If you, as we toured, we would, you know, make friends in other towns and see bands in other towns that we felt like a affinity with, um, that had a similar situation that was allowing them to exist, you know. Um, and, uh, I think it's, I think it's important, like you're saying, to the life of a town or to the life of the state, you know, the cultural aspect. Um, and, you know, hopefully we're still part of that here, even though, you know, our bands aren't just from North Carolina, they're from all over the, country and all over the world um but you know like yesterday for instance uh sylvan esso band from here got nominated for a grammy it's it's exciting you know when you see that happen yeah and nick sanborn uh used to live in milwaukee and was the bartender at my favorite bar in milwaukee the cactus club yeah (laughs) so shout out to nick and the cactus club all right guys i want to tell you about my book which came out in 2016 it's called your favorite band is killing me it's a book about music rivalries Beatles versus Stones, Oasis versus Blur, and there's like 15 other rivalries after that. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know about this book probably already. I've, I talked a lot about it when it first came out, but I'm, I'm mentioning it now because we're in the middle of the holiday season, and if you're looking for a present, uh, the book is there. It's ready, and it's a great stocking stuffer. And if uh, you check your favorite online retailers. I've noticed that a lot of places have recently lowered the price. So get the book. It's not that much. It's only going to cost you about 10 or 11 bucks. Or if you go to your neighborhood bookstore, the book is available there too. It'll cost a little bit more money, but you'll be supporting a local business and you can feel good about that. I also want to throw this in. I have a new book coming out in 2018. It's called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It's a book about sex, drugs, dad rock, and dead rock stars. (laughs) So, and there's other things in the book too, but I'm going to be talking more about that book, of course, as, as, as we get closer to the release date in 2018, it comes out May 8th, if you're curious, but we'll, we'll be talking about it more next year. But if you want to pre-order the book, it's available right now for pre-order. And maybe you want to get that for the person in your life that loves music too. Like you can give them the, the print off saying, I don't have a present for you now, but you're going to get this book in five months. <laughs> so it's something for them to look forward to. So again, 
You can get my first book now. It's called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. And you can also get my second book called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. That comes out in May, but you can pre-order it now. So get those books for your music lover in your life for Christmas. I think they'll love it. So I was uh, rereading the book that you co-wrote with Laura and John Mm -hmm. Cook, the book Our Noise, the story of Merge Records. I was rereading it last night. And one of the things that struck me about it, uh, and by the way, people out there, if you haven't read that book, you should read it. It's an essential story about American indie rock. It's a great book. Um, So I gave you a plug right there, Mac. Thanks. A lot of good good pictures, too. Yeah, great pictures. Uh, One of the things that struck me rereading about the band's history is like how many different points where you, you could have fallen into different pitfalls. You know, because like there's a big thing in the book talking about how the rise of Superchunk it coincided with the rise of Nirvana and a lot of the you know major label bidding wars that were going on with with indie bands at the time. And then of course, you know, you you and Laura were in the band at the same time, and you guys split up, and there was drama there. And you know, if you've heard the record Foolish, you know that's an extension of that. I'm just wondering, like, when you look back on the band's history, I mean, do you see it that way? Do you see, like, certain, like, pitfalls or certain areas where you're like, oh, man, I'm glad we avoided that, or it's amazing that we survived that as a band? Because, I mean, you, you guys have been, and you, you had that hiatus in the 2000s, but you've been around now uh, for almost 30 years. I mean, that's an incredible run for any band. Uh, what are your reflections on that, I guess, looking back on, you know, the things that you were able to avoid? I guess, I mean, I guess the, you know, the the... The, um, it's funny because when, you know, like you said, us, our existence kind of coinciding with Nirvana and some, you know, I guess you would say the, the, the era of the year the punk, the year that punk broke. Um, you saw some bands get huge and, um, a lot of that happened because they signed to major labels and they had a big push behind them and that kind of thing. I mean, in the case of Nirvana, they're just, made great records also, but, um, we never did that. And so at the time, as some of these bands were getting huge, um, people would ask us like, you know, well, why are you, why do you, why don't you, why don't you want to get big? You know? Um, and so the choices we were making, I mean, which we would always say like, you know, we're not, we're not, it's not that we don't want to get big. We want to sell as many records as we can. You know, it's it's way more fun to play the packed shows than to like you know twenty people uh, in an empty room. So we we wanted to we wanted to be as big as we could be, but on certain terms. You know, on our terms. And I think that that was the that was kind of the overarching thing that led to most of the decisions that we made. You know. To be on to 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 be on merge, um, and to just do things the way we wanted to do things, and 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 you could probably, I mean, you might be able to say, you know, well, you limited, we limited ourselves in terms of how big we got, or um, like what we didn't accomplish by not trying to kind of go to another level or something, you know. But at the same time, we also saw plenty of bands that tried to do that and didn't do that. Uh, and, 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 um, we're making good records, but never got any bigger than they were, except for now they owed someone a bunch of money, you know, and like that was the position that we never wanted to be in. Um, so I, I don't really see, I, I mean, 
you know, uh, I don't really think of it as like milestones or like pivot points or like specific moments where like, oh, if only, you know, we would have done this, this would have happened or whatever, because it was such a long arc, you know what I mean? Like such kind of like everything feels kind of gradual when you're just doing it and touring all the time and working at the label and blah, 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 you know, the stuff is happening every day. Um, in, in real life, it's, you know, you don't, which is one reason before we wrote that book, we said to, um, John who wrote it with us and, uh, a friend of ours, David Kuhn, who published, who got, who was the one who said, you know, like you should write this book. I'll find someone to publish it. You know, my first thing was like, well, I just don't feel like there's a, a dramatic enough story. You, you know what I mean? Like there's no like, and then they almost did this, but then this happened and it was like a bomb went off or whatever. It's just, it's just always more felt super gradual and day to day, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but, but like I said, I feel like it was more the kind of overarching approach that we took that, um, led us to where we are. But, you know, at the same time, you know, John, our drummer has, has said that he thinks that we super chunk would be remembered more for the way we did things than for our, records and i you know i i hope that he's wrong about that because i feel like um you know we've made some good records and i don't think that we would still be together to your point about how long we've been around if we weren't making good records in other words when we made majesty shredding which was our first like new out al- you know album of new songs in like nine years um i feel like that was because we had a batch of songs and we thought like, wow, this would make a great super chunk record. And, um, we had taken a break from touring and all the things that had kind of burnt us out by the end of 2002 or whatever. Um, and, uh, we're just ready to do it again. But like I said, if, if, if we had started recording after not, you know, kind of making a record in that many years and had just kind of felt like, eh, this is just kind of whatever. I don't think we would have gone through with it. I, mean, I think that would be like the worst thing is if you like went, if you like took a break and then came back with like a real kind of like half-assed record, you know, that'd be not, not really the way to do that. Yeah. Um, but I also think that's why we never broke up. You know, like a lot of bands we knew, like, were like we're done. And then five years later, 10 years later, it's our reunion tour. Like we could have maybe made more money doing that, but it just never, there was never some dramatic thing of like, you know, I'll never be getting in the van with you again. You know, <laughs> we're, we're breaking up. Right. Um, it was just more like some burnout. And, and we, you know, we did have a conversation at one point at the end of touring for, uh, here's the shutting up, I guess, of about, you know, like, do we want to keep doing this? And I can't remember, but we just played some weird show. And I was like, well, I don't want that to be our last show. Like, that'd be weird. <laughs> Um, so we were just like, why don't we just like not break up, you know, why don't yeah. we just take a break and, and that's kind of what we ended up doing. I mean, I feel like you and John are, are both right in that I think you'll be remembered for how you did things and also for your catalog. And I, I think where those two things meet is in the consistency of the band, that this is a band that you can listen to No Pocky for Kitty, which comes out in 91 and it's great. And you can listen to Majesty Shredding from 2010. And it's great. And it's a 20 year gap. And 
it's sort of like the San Antonio Spurs or something like that. That that kind of greatness where that's a great compliment. It's like greatness yeah, over a long period. Tim of, Duncan, he's, he's one of my favorite players of all time. See, well, you are the Tim Duncan of Super Chunk. Then I'm, I'm, I would take that any day. Well, you know, it is gratifying that our fans have stayed with us. You know, because fans go away for a long time. Like no one has to care when we come back. You know. Um, but when we're, for instance, today, Jim and I are rehearsing for this show that we're playing next week in Miami at the NADA Art Fair, um, and we're, we're doing it to promote a, an auction, um, that's a benefit for the Southern Poverty Law Center. And with our most recent single, Break the Glass, we, we made the single a benefit and, you know, we sold out the 600 copies that we made or whatever. And we sold them for a little bit higher price than normal singles so we could actually raise some money. But, you know, you still can't raise a ton of money putting out a seven inch. So what we've done, and we did it for another single this year too, but what we've done is we have an art auction to accompany the, the seven inch. So we had, we had a bunch of artists that are some of our favorite artists make seven inch sleeve sized pieces of art that will be auctioned off on Paddle 8 website. And to promote that, we're going to Miami during the art fairs there and playing a show at not uh, the NADA fair. Um, and so we're writing the set list, and we're going to do Break the Glass and a couple of the new songs, but then, you know, when we're writing our list of songs that we think people would, would want to hear and that we'd want to play, it's very gratifying that, you know, five of the songs are from our last two records. And and we know that it's great knowing that playing those songs isn't going to bum people out. Like, <laughs> oh, I just wish they would play like an old song, you know, yeah. uh, because people have, like I said, have stayed with us and um, people like Crossed Wires and people like Learn to Surf and me and you and Jack and me too and these songs from our recent records and um, want to hear those I don't know if they want to hear them as much as they want to hear a song from the Pocky for Kitty, but we know that we can play stuff from our whole catalog and that people aren't going to, you know, be like, oh, if they would just play the songs from their first record, you know. Right. Um, so that's a good, that's a very good position to be in as someone in a band to be able to play stuff from all your records and put together a set list that way. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this hiatus that the band took. You, you alluded to it earlier. I mean, I feel like with a band like yours, and you know, I had uh, Jeff Tweedy and John Saradon from Wilco on the podcast recently, and I think Wilco, in a way, has a similar issue to Superchunk in that, you know, these bands are so reliable; they're always good. They put out records every couple of years, and I feel like at some point, people, either fans or, or certainly the music press, it, it starts to become like, oh, it's another great Superchunk album, like you know, ho hum, great. Was there any thinking like, okay, we're, we're going to go away for nine years, and we're going to make you guys wait? And when you come back, then you're going to appreciate what we do. <laughs> was there any feeling of that when that happened? Mm. No, there, there really wasn't, though. Like I said, like we did feel burned out. We felt burned out from touring. Um, the record, here's shutting up the last studio record we've made up to that point, it was literally supposed to come out like the week after 9-11. And... So it got postponed like maybe a week or something, two weeks. And so we're going on tour like when literally the whole world is like bummed out and scared and freaked out. And it was just a very weird time 
Um, and we also worked for a long time on that record. We wrote all the songs together, jamming in Jim's garage. Um, you know, there's a lot of keyboards on it. Like we were just trying to do different stuff. Um, to keep ourselves interested and to make a different kind of record, you know, like, uh, and I felt like that process also was kind of exhausting. So by the time we were done with that album cycle, like I said, it wasn't like, I hate you. It was just, everyone's just kind of like, Oh my God, I'm just kind of tired. Um, and so we, it wasn't like we got to go away and make sure people like appreciate us. It was more just like, let's play a couple shows a year. If it seems fun, we'll do it. If not, we just won't do it. You know? Um, and we recorded a couple random songs here and there during that time, but, um, I think we just kind of waited until we all had the energy to fully get back into it again before making the next record, you know? Yeah. I do think it's interesting that, you know, Super Trunk, you guys were able to come back after that break and make a series of really strong records, including the one that's coming out next year, What a Time to Be Alive, really strong records. And I feel like Dinosaur Jr. was able to do that and Mission of Burma was able to do that. Like all these bands that kind of came out of 80s punk, it seems like they've, you know, it wasn't sort of the old classic rock thing like where you come back and then your late period albums aren't any good and people go buy <laughs> beer during your songs or something. It, it right. seems like, like that, that class of bands, like you guys have been able to kind of keep it going and uh, I find that interesting. I think that one of the, I mean, I, you know, I saw Dinosaur Jr. on this last tour I mean, I see them whenever I can because they're always great. Um, and the records, the records before Lou came, Lou and Murph came back were great. You know, the records since they've been back are great. It's, it's, in, the consistency is incredible. But I think that one of the, a couple of bands that to me have been inspiring in that way have been Yola Tango, um, is one example of a band that hasn't repeated themselves. They've, been around for a long time. They always play great shows. They make great records. They they do things to keep it interesting for themselves and for their fans. Um, and uh, another band would be the Mekons. Like I remember, you know, like the Mekons. I remember seeing. We played a show with them. One of our first times in Chicago, we got to play a show with them at the Metro. It was great. Um, they're always great live. And I remember being at a show. Uh, me and Jim being at a show of theirs and probably early 2000s, mid-2000s at the Cat's Cradle. There wasn't a ton of people there. And they were still the Mekons. They were still, like, doing their thing and doing it well and funny and having a good time and audiences having a good time. And I think, again, like, that's a real inspiration and the thing that kind of reminds you, like, what's fun about this for you? Like, you know, what can you only have fun if there's a packed house? You know, or can you figure out a way to to because when you st- when the band started there wasn't always people at the shows you know what I mean like can you still somehow like tap into that thing um, both to make it enjoyable for yourself but also I think that that's what allows you to make still make good songs and make good music you know is the fact that you're having fun doing it um, you know another band that goes away for longer than we go away is like the Clean you know. And when David makes a solo record or when the Queen makes a record, it still sounds like the Queen and it's still great. You know, it doesn't sound like a pale version of the Queen. Um, I mean, those guys are pale, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't sound like a half-assed version of, of what makes them great, you know? Right, yeah, totally. Uh, I want to go back to something 
you know, that uh, struck me while I was reading uh, or revisiting Our Noise last night, which is, you know, this idea of indie culture or punk rock culture being, in a way, an alternative to mainstream culture. That for a lot of people, I guess back then, that were gravi- that gravitated to that world, they were attracted to something that they couldn't get from the mainstream, you know, whether it be culture or politics or whatever the case may be. And, you know, we live in a world now because of how media is set up and, and with the internet where that sort of stratification, it hasn't completely gone away, but it's, it's, it's harder to maintain that. It, you can't really be away from anything because we're all connected. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. benefits to that, a lot of great things about that. Um, but I'm wondering, like, how do you feel about that? I mean, obviously, Merge, you guys continue to do your own thing. There's a lot of records that you put out. I mean, the impression I get from Merge is that you're always putting out records because they're good. Do you think that they're good, not because you think they're going to be you know, humongous sellers? Um, but I mean, do you feel like it's harder to maintain that sort of alternative culture thing? And if it is, is that something that we should be mourning? Or I mean, is it good that things are kind of, everything is together now? I mean, I think that if I had to, if you gave me like one statement to make on that <laughs> subject, I would say that the internet ruined everything. Um <laughs> So, you know, we'll start there, but since there's, since it's not going away, I mean, I guess I would just say that um, you still just have to find ways to kind of like make your own, make your own vibe. I mean, make your own scene, you know what I mean? And um, I think one way to do that is playing live. I mean, because it's your people there, your fans, and it's your opportunity to connect with people in that way. I mean, otherwise, when you're putting a record out, yeah, you're trying to cut through an incredible amount of noise, but yet at the same time, not just like beat people over the head to the point where they don't ever want to hear about you again. Um, and like you said, you're kind of doing it in all the same places that everyone is doing it. There isn't, it isn't just like, well, you know, forget reviewed in like Maximum Rock and Roll and Flipside and conflict and triple X and, um, all these zines and like, at least we'll find our people, you know, um, it's, everyone is sifting through an incredible amount of information every day to find stuff that they like. So it's, it's, it's a dichotomy of like, everything's available, but also everything's available. So (laughs) how do you find the things that you want to find? Um, but I think that, the people who work here at Merge have done a really good job of um, knowing like what works for what band in terms of how to find their fans and what's going to feel good for the band, you know what I mean, and not feel gross. And, um, and it's not the same for every band. Um, and the same goes for selling records and um, trying to involve everyone that, you know, record stores in a way that makes everyone feel connected to the, to the music that they're selling. And at the same time, knowing that a lot of people are getting their, aren't getting the music from record stores, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a lot to like, it's a lot of lines to walk, you know, but, um, it's just something that, you know, we're figuring out every day, I think. Well, with the help of this podcast, people will find, the next Super Chunk record. It's called What a Time to Be Alive. It comes out in February. It's great. You're going to love it. Mac, thank you for talking to me today. And uh, Thanks so much for the talk. All right, man. Take care. Thanks a lot. You too. Okay, so that was me and Mac McCon.
talking about Super Chunk, talking about indie rock history, getting into it. That was a really fun conversation. Uh, guys, I just uh, want to plug something quick that I, that I ran on uprocks.com last week that I wrote. Uprocks.com, of course, is where I write. If you like this podcast, if you like listening to me talk, you may also enjoy my writing. It's like me talking, but it's only in your head. So it's sort of a special, exclusive thing just for you. Uh, but anyway, last week I... Uh, did a huge story on my 50 favorite albums of the year. Now, if you listen to last week's podcast, you know that I, I, uh, I talked about some of those records with uh, my colleague at uprocks.com, Caitlin White. Uh, but this is my full list of records. Um, so uh, you want to check that out. There'll be a lot of, I think, recommendations on there. I, you know, I, 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 certainly there's going to be records on there that you've heard of, but I think... Uh, you know, I, I like to throw in some curveballs. I like to throw in some sleeper picks. You know, make sure that maybe you're being introduced to something you haven't heard before. So, so check that out. Um, also, want to do a shout out to Derek, of course, the producer of the show, Derek Madden. Thank you for that. Uh, Joshua Copperman, the dude who wrote our theme song. Such a great theme song. I love having that at the top of the episode. That's working really great. And of course, I want to thank you guys. Shout out to the listeners. Guys, you guys make this show possible uh, with your support. I always love hearing from you on Twitter. I love seeing reviews of the site on iTunes. You know, that stuff does make a difference when you review the podcast. It helps our algorithms, you know, with our rankings. If we're, if we're reviewed by, positively by people, we tend to, to rate higher. I don't know why that is, but it works that way, I think. Um, but thanks for talking about us on social media and telling your friends about us. We rely on word of mouth to grow. So the fact that this podcast has grown a lot this season um, speaks to the great support you guys have given us. So thank you so much for that. So we only have a couple more episodes left this year. We're going to be done at the end of the year. Our last date's going to be December 18th, although we may do two episodes that week. We'll see. I have a couple really cool interviews up in the air. I'm pretty sure they're going to happen. Uh, so we at least have one more episode after this but there may be two, and then we're going to take a couple months off before coming back. So, guys, thanks again for listening uh, to the Celebration Rock Podcast. Uh, we will talk to you again next week.